Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In today's episode, we're looking at the psychology of human performance and asking how the world of Formula One might be able to help us in that regard in our own personal lives. And also, is it ever okay just to quit from a winning position? And why would you do that? Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. I appreciate every single one of you that's taken some time out of your day to spend it with me. However it is you're listening, wherever it is you're listening and whatever it is you're up to whilst you're listening, I love it that we get to share these 60 minutes or so together talking about some of the lessons that I have taken from the world of Formula One, from my life within the world of Formula One and my life post Formula One as well. Lessons that are all around us that I feel have so much value to each and every one of us that I feel obligated to now share my take on those. And if you see some value in anything that you hear over the next hour, I would really appreciate it if you could let me know. And you can let me know on any of the social media platforms. Just drop me a message. My DMs are always open and I read every single one. Try to respond to every single one as well. Uh, but also, if you're listening to this in one of the podcast stores, give the podcast a little bit of love. Give it a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. That really does have a powerful effect on how far and wide we can spread this message. But wherever it is you're listening, a follow, a subscribe or a like, however you can interact with the podcast, it makes a real difference. And I would really, really appreciate it. So thank you in advance. And thank you to everybody who's already done that. I appreciate you all. Um, this week, we want to talk about a couple of different subjects. Uh, one of those is or centered or came out of uh, something that I experienced myself this week, an event that I was at and a question that was posed to me that I have extrapolated something from that I think I can relate back to the world of Formula One and beyond, but something that could be relevant to every single one of us. So I want to explore that. And the other one, which is where I'm going to start, came out of the conversations, the discussions that have centered around Daniel Ricciardo's let's say, below-par performances uh, since his arrival back at McLaren. And most recently, off the back of the Monaco Grand Prix, those conversations got louder. They became more mainstream. There were comments being bandied around from senior members of the McLaren team, Daniel Ricciardo, having to respond to those. And the confusion and the mess that comes out of that kind of communication, I thought we could explore further and take some lessons from it that we can perhaps apply to our daily lives, the people around us, maybe our teams at work, wherever it is you see fit, I hope you can take something from it. And so let's look at Daniel Ricciardo's situation. He obviously came back to McLaren or came to McLaren rather with a, a lot of promise, with a lot of expectation from both the team side, from the fan side, but also, I'm sure, from Daniel Ricciardo's side as well. That expectation so far, in the most part, hasn't been met. And apart from that incredible day at Monza, uh, where he led the team home for a 1-2 finish, with Lando Norris coming in behind him on that day, other than that moment of glory and absolute joy that it brought to so many people, other than that, it's been quite disappointing in the most part, hasn't it? He has been consistently outperformed by his younger teammate, Landon Norris. He has failed to meet, I'm sure, his own expectations and those of the teams and everybody watching on. And a lot of people are now asking questions. Now, it's absolutely valid to ask those questions as fans, as stakeholders in the sport, as people with an interest. We all, of course, I'm sure, most of us at least, want to see Daniel Ricciardo performing at the level that we know he can. And I think that's the point that I want to make here. I want to stress early on that we all know that Daniel Ricciardo can perform. I don't think many people believe that he's suddenly forgotten how to drive a racing car. He's an incredibly experienced guy. He's an incredibly talented guy. Someone who has always been very exciting when we've watched on uh, when he's behind the wheel. And someone that I think we all want to see performing at that level again. 
Certainly as a McLaren fan myself, as an ex-member of the team, and I know many McLaren fans listen to this podcast, I'm sure all of us would love to see him helping the team get back to where we all feel they should belong. And yet it hasn't happened yet. So there could be a number of reasons why that hasn't happened. From a technical perspective, uh, matching Daniel's driving style to the unique characteristics of that McLaren car, we know that those things have an impact. We've seen drivers up and down the grid, brilliant drivers, struggle when they've moved to different teams and different cars. We've seen the likes of Max Verstappen be able to be utterly dominant in a Red Bull car over recent years where some very talented young drivers have come along as his teammates and yet haven't managed to adapt their driving styles to the specific characteristics of that Red Bull car that Max has had almost designed and built around him to suit the way that he drives that car. We've seen Sebastian Vettel, a four-time world champion in a Red Bull, leave that team and in the most part, certainly in recent years, struggle to some extent to replicate that form that we'd become so used to. Again, perhaps the Red Bull had some quite specific characteristics that when he left that team, he wasn't able to match his driving style that perhaps had been honed around that Red Bull car to the characteristics of some of the other cars that he's driven since. Whatever the reasons, they haven't managed to live up to the expectation that we have all developed off the back of some very successful times earlier on in their careers. And I guess Daniel Ricciardo is going through a moment like that right now. The point that I wanted to explore in a little bit more depth was not really about why Daniel Ricciardo or any other driver might be struggling in a particular racing car, but how you get over that, how you overcome that difficulty, that challenging moment, both as the racing driver, but also as the team, as the team boss and as fans and as the people around those people that we're trying to support, perhaps, how can we support them? How should we support them? What do they need from their environment to give them the best opportunity to be successful in that car. And if we think about that in the case of Daniel Ricciardo, the reason this came up, the reason this jumped out at me and became a subject of conversation for me was off the back of the comments from Zach Brown last week. Now, I absolutely take any comments put in the media with some kind of pinch of salt. You never quite know the context. I have been on both sides of this, don't forget. I've been inside a team inside the secretive, protective world of a team environment. But I've also now spent many years in the media where your goal is to try and extract the big headline, the comment that's going to go viral on the internet. So I'm very well aware that we need to judge those quotes in the context of this media Formula One environment. But I don't think there's too much question that the quotes are rightly attributed to Zach Brown. And essentially, in the broadest terms, what Zach was saying was that there are terms, clauses in the contract between McLaren and Daniel Ricciardo that would allow that contract to be terminated before it's run its full length. And essentially what happens then is those quotes get powered around the media, they get circulated around the internet, they very, very quickly escalate and they get speculated upon about what those clauses might be. Now, it may well be that there are clauses on both sides, from Daniel's side and from the team's side. They may be around performance, but they may be around other elements as well. There might be lots of reasons why the contract may end up being terminated early. Now, I'm sure it's not what anybody expected or wanted when that contract was initially signed. Certainly as fans of the sport, I don't think many of us would like to see that happen. But the fact that Zach Brown came out and said it, and then the fact that the media, of course, jumped on that, picked up on it and speculated that now the team may well be considering terminating Daniel's contract early because his performance clauses may not have been met, has only escalated the problem for Daniel Ricciardo, in my opinion, even more. I mean, it's not rocket science, is it? That if you have a driver that's struggling in your car, there are a number of ways that you can try and help him. You can play around with the setup of the car. You can bring mechanical or performance upgrades to try and help that driver. You can use the technical systems on board the car to try and aid some of the areas where the driver might be weak. You can use data analysis to try and identify areas around a lap or throughout a race weekend 
where that driver might be able to improve, where he might be losing out to his teammate, for example. You can look at historical data and compare that to your most recent performance and look for or identify areas where you may have created a bad habit. You may have lost a particular technique that was serving you well in days gone by and perhaps try and help the driver to reintroduce that technique or to eliminate that bad habit. And we might only be talking about fractions, tiny fractions of a second hundreds or thousands of a second in different areas around a lap that can all add up to half a second, two or three tenths. Sometimes that's all it can be. That's all it needs to be to be the difference between your teammate who might be qualifying fourth or fifth and you being just outside the top 10. So the team have an awful lot of tools available to them and the driver to try and help through this challenging period of time, to go through various processes that might enable them to just look for and identify and find these tiny little opportunities to improve. Formula One's all about tiny little details and then adding them together to make a significant difference, to create a performance advantage over your rivals and competitors. And because Formula One's such a technically advanced sport, some of those tools that are available to the teams are highly technologically advanced. They are the very cutting edge of what data analysis looks like what simulation tools look like. But because Formula One is such a technologically driven industry, it's often easy to overlook that much of that technology, in fact, all of that technology, is driven or powered by the humans behind it. The idea of human performance inside Formula One is huge. And perhaps it was something that wasn't such a big part of the industry not that long ago, in reality. We'd spend hundreds of thousands of pounds, millions even, a huge chunk of our budget, would go on making the car go faster and faster, tenths of a second here or there. And a massive amount of money would be spent on doing that because that was where almost all of the focus was. If you want to win a Grand Prix, if you want to win a championship, you need the fastest car. And whatever we can do, whatever money we have to spend to incrementally bring that lap time down, it's worth doing. But we did all that to some extent at the expense of the human beings that created that technology, that operated that technology, that developed that top technology, that implemented that technology. The human beings behind a Formula One team are way more powerful than any of the technology that we have at our disposal. The human beings are what make it all happen. And that includes the driver, of course. So whilst we have tools available to help a driver when he's struggling to find areas where we might be able to improve through things like data analysis and simulation, There's also another part of what being a Formula One racing driver is. And that's what one thing that we all have in common. We are all humans. The drivers behind the wheel of these cars are human beings like the rest of us. They have good days and bad days. They have emotional states that are continuously changing, like they are for all of us, throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout their lives. And those constantly changing emotions and feelings inside them that we're all subjected to therefore change our performance. They can have an enormous impact on what we are able to produce, how we're able to perform, how we interact with other people or the things around us, how we're able to do our jobs. These things can change on a daily basis. They can change us from being an outright high performer one day to having struggles the next in the same task, in the same operation. There's something that we were good at yesterday, the next day we may find a lot harder to do. And that is what being a human being is. And so whilst that's a simplistic look at this, and we can look at a Formula One driver and say, look, they're elite athletes. These are the best of the best. They surely, by the time they get to Formula One, have found ways to overcome the emotional state, to create the right emotional state when it matters to enable them to do their job. That's what part of being an elite athlete is or an elite performer. You find ways... Over time, you develop techniques, you become self-aware of what works for you, and you are able to switch the right emotional states on when you need them. And in most cases, that's exactly what happens. I'm not even suggesting that Daniel Ricciardo, as our current example here, is struggling with that. Because there could be, as I said earlier, a whole host of reasons why he might be struggling in the car. But the one thing we all have in common with Daniel Ricciardo despite none of us being F1 racing drivers, unless, of course, you are an F1 racing driver listening to this podcast. But we all have one thing in common with Daniel Ricciardo, and that is the fact that we're all human beings. 
And so one of the things that I'm sure we all know affects our emotional state is our psychology, is the thoughts that we are having inside our mind. And those thoughts, those thought processes are continually being impacted or being shaped by the environment that we're in, by the communications that we're getting from our friends and colleagues, from our family, from the people around us. We might be affected by social media and the messages that we're constantly seeing through those kind of things. And in the case of somebody like Daniel Ricardo, where you are the subject of media attention in most days of your life, particularly when things are not going so well, that media attention must be very, very hard to completely block out of your life. You're being asked questions every week about your performance, about are you going to stay with the team? Are you going to see out your contract? Daniel, is it true that Zach Brown says there may be an early opt-out clause on your contract so the team can get rid of you before the end of your term? These are the sorts of questions that even if you choose never to look at a newspaper, never to ever switch on the internet, which of course none of us can ever do, but even if you try actively to block out the media, the media are coming directly to Daniel Ricciardo to ask him those questions. So it's unavoidable to at least some extent. And yes, these guys are amazing at coping with that, in dealing with that in the most part. But there's got to come a point where you start to really struggle to handle that when it's relentless and you're already presumably having a bit of a confidence crisis from your performance in the car anyway. And so where I'm going with this is to point out that as well as a Formula One team having all of this technology available to them, all of these tools and tricks up their sleeve that might help them and their driver to maximise what each of them can bring to the party, they also have another tool, a tool that we all have. Every single one of us listening to this podcast has available to us, and that's the tool of communication the tools of emotional support. Now, I'm not suggesting for a moment that McLaren are not giving Daniel emotional support because I'm sure they're trying their very best. This is a situation that's been going on for some time. And behind the scenes, I know from speaking to some of my former colleagues still at the team, they're trying everything they can to make this work. Of course, the team wants it to work just as much as Daniel Ricciardo does, just as much as every single McLaren fan listening wants it to work as well. They are trying their hardest. But when a comment like the comment that came out from Zach Brown surfaces in the media last week and then everybody pounces on it and relates it back to Daniel, speculates about what it might mean and the stories start getting written, the conversations start becoming louder and louder, the questions start getting asked to Daniel before he gets in a car every single week in a moment when he needs to absolutely focus on trying to improve, he's being asked about when he's going to get sacked. That communication is surely going to have the very opposite effect from the one that the team needed to have. Now, there are moments, which I fully accept, there are moments when putting a bit of pressure on somebody through some external media comments can actually be a good thing, can be the thing that kickstarts somebody into delivering what you need them to deliver. When it comes to Formula One and a driver who's clearly struggling with his own confidence and his own abilities and his own performances, almost certainly questioning his own abilities, like many fans and many people watching on around the world are starting to do as well, then it feels like it can only have a negative impact. And I don't want this to be a criticism of Zach Brown or of McLaren, because as I said earlier, they are trying their hardest. And I have no idea how these quotes were elicited from uh, from Zach Brown or how they were uh, portrayed, whether they were portrayed in the right context or not. It may have been part of a bigger conversation. I have no idea. I'm not even going to speculate on that. But I want to come away from the, the specific Daniel Ricciardo situation here and look at this idea of communication and emotional support when it comes to delivering performance in any scenario of our lives, whether it's us as a parent trying to be the best parent we can be when our children might be really challenging us, when we're asking ourselves questions of how on earth are we going to cope as a new parent with babies or little toddlers running around We have no major experience of how we should be doing this. There's no instruction manual. We have to figure it out as we go. And confidence crises are something that happens to almost every single parent on the planet. So when you're a new parent and you think you're the only one going through it, clearly you're not. Definitely you're not. 
I can tell you, I've done it four times now. (laughs) It's hard every single time. And every single time you have this imposter syndrome type emotion creeping in. Do I deserve to be here? Am I really good enough as a parent? My kids are now relying on me. Can I possibly live up to their expectations? Can I live up to my expectations? The expectations of everybody around me who all seem to be cruising through life, doing a great job of being a parent. Got it all under control. They've got amazing kids. They're well behaved. If I feel out of control in those moments, if I'm at breaking point as a new parent, and then somebody I totally respect, a friend, one of my own parents or family members were to put a comment on social media, for example, questioning my ability as a parent, raising concerns about how my children are going to grow up, maybe bringing in the possibility of having to introduce social services into my family environment. Imagine what that would do to my confidence, which is already at an absolute low point. The reason that could be so damaging for me in a moment like that is because when I'm struggling, when I don't have the answers, I don't quite know what to do, how to get myself out of this situation. I don't know what the right thing to do is in terms of being a good parent. In those moments, what you need to rely on is some kind of confidence. You need to extract some confidence from somewhere to give the ability to go ahead and make the right decisions, or at least make decisions you believe to be right. You can only make those decisions when you have confidence to take the step forward and make them. When you're low on confidence, when you're struggling with confidence, you struggle to make those decisions. Indecision becomes a big part of your life. And indecision means you don't progress. You don't move forward. You can't move forward. You end up reacting to situations much more than being proactive because you haven't got that confidence to move forward unaided. You feel out of control in that type of situation. And control is exactly what you need to feel some of to be able to dig your way out of that struggle, to find a path that will enable you to believe in your own ability to navigate through the challenge that you're facing. And to get that confidence, you sometimes need support from the outside world. And that support can come in a number of different ways. But it's also something that we as individuals perhaps shouldn't be afraid to ask for. And that's something that not many of us are very good at, in my experience, asking for support, admitting that we're struggling and talking to friends or family members or even somebody outside of our closer unit if we don't feel confident enough to talk to those people. But asking for support can be one of the most powerful tools available to us. And of course, on the flip side of that, giving support to the people around us, looking for the signs that they might need that support. If they don't feel comfortable having that difficult conversation, bringing it up to you and saying, listen, I'm struggling, I need support. Can you start to identify some of those signs? And can you, if you do see those signs, go to those people, make the first move. Remember, if their confidence is on the floor, they are less likely to feel brave enough, to feel bold enough to step up and come to you and say, listen, I'm having a really hard time. I could really do with a chat. I could do with a hug. I could do with somebody telling me that actually I'm doing okay as a parent. It's not a complete disaster. I want to hear from somebody else that they struggle too. Can you identify some of those signs? Are you looking at people around you and looking for elements where they might not be performing in the way that you've perhaps come to expect? Can you see differences in their behaviour or their demeanour where it might be that they look a little bit like a shadow of their former self? Maybe they've disappeared within themselves a little bit. And if you see some of those signs, maybe just go and ask if they're okay. And if they say, yeah, of course, I'm fine. Maybe just ask one more time. Okay, but are you really okay? Because if you're not okay, I'm here for you. I'm happy to have a chat. You know, I know what it's like being a parent. And if you're not a parent, you can say things like, listen, I know what it's like. I've seen some of my other friends really struggle in the early months of parenthood, in the early years of parenthood. Quite frankly, it's always a struggle being a parent. (laughs) I've got a full range of kids with my eldest now being 22 years old. It's always a struggle to navigate that process smoothly. There is no right or wrong way to do it. We all have our own way. And quite frankly, we're all winging it all the way through. Parenthood is just one small example. Of course, this applies to every walk of life. 
There must be people in your team at work that are struggling to perform in the way that you need them to, or you've seen them perform in the past. What is it that's driving that? Is there something going on either at work that you may be able to directly help with by changing something within their working environment, changing where they are in the office, who they're sitting with, who they're working with, exactly what their role entails? Is there some tool or system or resource that you can give them to enable them to overcome these problems and work a little bit better? There could be all manner of different things that can help, but it might be something that's well away from work. It could be something in their personal lives or social lives that's gone wrong behind the scenes, that they're very unlikely to walk into the office and announce to everybody. But if you start to see the signs of the performance diminishing, of behaviour changing, where it might look like somebody is struggling, even if in the smallest way, confidence might be waning, can you go and sit down and ask them if there's any way you can help? Because if we can start to be a little bit vulnerable and sit with those people and say, listen, I'm struggling too, even if you're the boss of a company, and I have had this experience many, many times where I have worked for bosses in companies in the past, for leaders and managers, where they have this bravado and a need to come across as being strong, both physically sometimes and emotionally, where they're never weak. They have no weaknesses and they will never show any weaknesses. I'm sure we've all known bosses and managers and leaders like that. But the reality is that's probably not the best way to be a leader. Because as a leader, the people beneath you, the people around you, and this doesn't just go for the work environment. Come back to the parent thing, if you like. Same thing. Many of us are leaders in so many walks of our life, even if it doesn't say it on our business card. We have the opportunity to lead and show the way to so many other people. And if we can show some vulnerability in that process, the power that that can have on the people that we are leading can be immense. For somebody to look up to the person that they might idolise, that they might look up to for leadership and advice, to see that that person also struggles can be one of the most powerful tools in the world. If the opposite comes, if those people that might be struggling, that might be waning in confidence, look up to their leadership team and they see a team or a leader who exudes nothing but strength and confidence that seems, on, at least on the outside, to give off this aura of perfection. And therefore, they expect that from everybody else. And because of the narrative coming from that leader, because of the communication coming from that leader, anything other than perfection is just something that can't be tolerated. That's not going to help that person who's lacking in confidence. It's not going to help them overcome that struggle. It's not going to make them feel like they can go to that leader and ask for support. When we don't feel like we're getting the support that we need, and that support can and will be different for every single individual. We all need different things at different times of our lives when we are struggling. But if, as an individual, you don't feel like you're getting the support you need, it can have the impact of knocking confidence even further, which, of course, can exacerbate the struggles that you're already facing. It can make the challenge even harder. The climb back out of the hole that you might have found yourself in becomes twice as big when you don't feel like you've got any support around you, when you feel even more so like you're on your own, like you're facing this battle alone. Confidence disappears. And this is one of the reasons why I was so surprised to hear those comments from Zach Brown circulating in the media. Because whilst I'm speculating clearly around this, I have had no conversation specifically with Daniel Ricciardo, I can only begin to imagine that if he's starting to have a struggle with his own confidence, starting to question his own ability, having this imposter syndrome kicking in, which is such a common phenomenon. Nobody wants to talk about it, but it's there and we've all suffered it at times where we don't feel like we're good enough to be in the room. That might sound like a strange thing for somebody like Daniel Ricciardo to experience. He's a Formula One driver. He's won Grand Prix. He is highly regarded in the world of F1. But if over an extended period of time, you've got not just the people around you, not just some of your peers, the fans of the sport that you're in, but also the media, millions and millions of people around the world beginning to question your ability, beginning to criticise you week in, week out, 
Some of that criticism will get through. No matter how strong your barriers and defences are, some of that criticism will make its way through. And when it makes its way through as an individual, you're going to take a hit of confidence with that. Those questions that other people are asking, you'll begin to ask yourselves, am I good enough? Should I be replaced? Is there somebody better that could do a better job? If Lando Norris can get the best out of this car, if he can start to challenge for podiums and consistent points finishes, well, why can't I? I'm Daniel Ricciardo. I'm a great driver. Aren't I? And those questions will start to have an even bigger impact. They get inside your head. And the problem, of course, at that point begins to escalate. And it can happen very, very quickly. So the way that we communicate to the people around us who we may not even be aware are always struggling. The way we communicate to those people, we need to be careful about. We need to think about which words we choose to use with them, which sentences we utter around them. If communications can have such a big negative impact on somebody that might be struggling, if they're hearing negativity, if they're hearing the wrong questions, the wrong communications, the wrong words being said to them, being said about them, If the negative impact from that can be so massive, well, then the positive impact that can come from the right types of communication can be equally as powerful. By doing and saying the right things to people who might be struggling, having the right types of conversations, by asking the right types of questions, saying the right things, the powerful impact that that can have can be just as powerful, if not more so than any negativity that might creep in once those communications start to get inside your head. And we can all do something about that. We can all start to have that impact on the people around us if we just think about how we communicate, what we communicate, in what way do we communicate it, and to who are we talking, which communications do these people need? If somebody's struggling, they might need a different type of communication to somebody else who might be struggling in exactly the same way. Because though the struggle might be similar, the person is an individual. So getting to know that person and the people that we know best are the ones that we can benefit most because we know them best. We know what helps them, what hinders them, what winds them up, what stresses them out, what calms them, what soothes them. All of those little details that we've begun to know over years, we can start to put in place in terms of the way we communicate to these people. So Go away from this conversation, from this podcast, and just look around you a little more. Look at the people around you. Nobody in most walks of life walks around telling everybody they're struggling. In fact, they do the opposite. They walk around trying to give off or portray an image of somebody who's strong, somebody who's confident, somebody who's successful. That's the narrative that we've all become accustomed to in life. We don't post pictures on our social media of our worst days. We post pictures of our best days when we're looking good. Some people even filter and change those images to make them look better than they really are because they want to give off an impression that they are strong, that they are confident, where in reality, it could be the exact opposite of that. And what we should and could be doing more of is looking for those signals, those tiny little bits of evidence that maybe only we can see because we know these people so well. And if we can start to identify those and then ask the right questions, give off the right types of communication, give somebody our backing, give them our support in whatever form that is best suited to them. It can go a huge way to transforming somebody's life, to bringing back the performance that we might have been accustomed to, that we know they're capable of. Psychology plays such a huge role in any form of human performance, in whatever category of life that may be. Formula One, as I said earlier, is a technology-driven industry. We're so technology-focused. It's all about these incredible cars, this incredible technology in the cars. What do the drivers have available to them? What are the new bits and updates coming to those cars to make them faster? And yet sometimes it's easy to overlook the, what we used to call as engineers in McLaren, the squidgy bit in the middle, the bit that we don't have the same engineering power over. The driver, the human being at the centre of that car can bring so much performance to it. And the psychology of that driver, the emotional state of that driver, the well-being, the health, the fitness, all of these soft skills, these fluffy bits, as we used to turn them, 
are equally, if not more important than any of the hard bits, any of the physical contributions that as engineers we can make to the performance of that car. They're only as good as the guy behind the wheel can make them. How good is his confidence? How confident is he in his own ability to deliver the maximum if we give him a great car? And that same philosophy works for every single one of us in our work environments, in our family environments, in our social environments. We have tools available to us. We have resources available to us. But is our psychology right? Is our mindset right? Is our confidence level at the right state to get the best out of those things? And if it isn't, is there something that we or the people around us can do about it? Can we ask for help, for support? Just open up, be vulnerable, because although that might be a difficult conversation to have in the moment, that might be a difficult thing to reach out and admit that you're struggling, it could also be the first step to you overcoming that struggle. And even if that takes weeks or even months or even years, the very first step is clearly the hardest one. Once you've asked for help, and if you've asked the right people, and if those people take that seriously enough around you and give you the support you need, even if it takes six months or longer, you are now on a path to recovery, to getting back to your highest level of performance, which ultimately, if it's six months from now, it won't matter. Today will be a distant memory. Because in six months, you'll be operating at a level that you've dreamed of, that you know you're capable of deep down, but have lost all confidence in. But it might take that first step of asking for support. And if you can't ask for support, if you're the person being asked... How are you going to respond to that cry for help? Take it seriously. Imagine how hard it might have been for that person who came to you asking for that support. If it was such a big deal to them, you need to respond in a similarly big way. And even if nobody comes to you with a cry for help, are they showing signals that might be doing that subconsciously? Are there little signs that they might be crying out for help, but unable or unwilling to do that publicly? to do it verbally? Is there another form of communication they might be using, whether it's through a lower level of performance, whether it's through some disappearing into their shell, not being the same outwardly going character that you've become so familiar with? Whatever the sign is, look out for it. Be more aware of it. Because we live in a society where almost everybody is struggling in one form or another in different elements of their life. So can we see the signs of where people are struggling? And is there something that we have? Do we have a skill? Do we have an ability where they might not? And that could help them. Do we have a strength where they might have a weakness that we can share with them? The power that that can bring is incredible, believe me. So I'd love it if you could just bear that in mind a bit more. We should all do that. I'll try and do it myself. And I guess I'm asking you guys to do that too. Okay, the next topic that I want to cover, and I've gone on quite a long time with the first one, so I'll try and be as succinct as I can with this one. Last night, I had the incredible opportunity to go to Nebworth House and see Liam Gallagher's gig, Kasabian was supporting. It was an amazing evening. And we're halfway through watching Liam Gallagher do his thing with a bunch of my great friends. And one of my friends turned to me and said, I wonder how long it'll go on for. I wonder how long he'll continue to do this for. Obviously, it's a long time. It's 25 or 26 years since Oasis did the same gig at Nebworth. That was what the point of the evening was. Liam's now in a much later stage of his life, obviously, and yet he's still performing many of the same songs. He's got a lot of new stuff too, but he's still performing with the same level of arrogance, of energy that we've all become so used to. I loved every single second of it. It didn't feel like his performance had deteriorated over all of those years. It still felt like an old Oasis gig from back in the day. That's how good he was. But my friend turned to me and said, I wonder how long he'll continue to do this for. Will he be like one of these aging rockers that rolls out when he's in his late 60s, even 70s, still trying to cling on to these moments that he was famous for back in the day? Will he roll out the old songs that far into his life? Or will he walk away? And we had a conversation about that and kind of put our own opinions forward around Liam. But the point of this conversation that I want to have with you guys today is not so much specific to Liam Gallagher, but more around the question of at what point in our lives can we, should we, is it okay to walk away from something, to quit? 
because we are so often told all the way through growing up that quitting is not an option. We should not quit. Quitting's for quitters. It's something that is a negative. It's almost like giving up. And we're trained not to give up because if we want something, we've just got to keep going. Never give up. That's the mantra that is drummed into us so often through childhood and into later life. And yet sometimes my opinion on this, and this is what came out of this conversation with my mate talking about Liam Gallagher, is that quitting is sometimes the best thing you can do. Giving up is sometimes okay. It's the right thing to do. I get asked all the time why I left my dream job at McLaren. How on earth could you walk away from a job that so many people would give their left arm for? They would do anything to have. I get messages from people all the time saying my dream is to work in Formula One. I'm desperate to get there. And yet I walked away from that. I didn't walk away from it because I had so much money I didn't need the job. I didn't walk away from it because I had fallen out of love with Formula One. I've explained in previous podcast episodes the very specific reasons why I walked away. But in the broadest sense, I walked away because I knew it was the right thing for me in that moment. I had personal circumstances that had changed, which meant I could no longer dedicate the same level of commitment to a job like that, that needs massive commitment that I've been able to for the previous 10 years of my life. And so I quit. I walked away. And I literally did quit. I got to the end of a season and I told the team manager that I had to go. I explained it all in detail, but I had no further job to go to. I had no major plan. I didn't have a massive stack of money that would keep me going for years without working. I just quit. I quit because the alternative was to continue doing what I was doing. And whilst I loved the job with every sense of my being, I loved it. It was my passion. It was my dream. My circumstances outside of work had changed to a level that I know that had I continued in that role, in that job, doing the same things, traveling the world, committing my life to McLaren rather than to the people that needed me at home, it would have been a disaster. I wouldn't have been happy. It would have ruined my life rather than made it better. And so I quit. And in that situation, quitting was the right thing to do. And I made it work and I went off and I created a new opportunity for myself and I've created a new career for myself within the realms of Formula One, but giving me the the freedom to be able to dedicate enough time to my family and my support network around me who needed me more than ever at that point in time. So quitting was the right thing to do. And there are so many examples of this happening where quitting seems on the face of it like an absolute disastrous decision. Why would you quit something like that? Yet only we know if quitting is the right thing. But what we do need to identify in our lives is, is it the right thing? And when is the right time for it to happen? Now, it's way too simplistic a viewpoint to say, well, listen, if you don't enjoy your job, if it makes you miserable, if you don't like what you do, just quit, just give it up. You can't always just look at things in those very simplistic terms because if the alternative to continuing in this job that you don't like is something that is even more disastrous, if it could have an even bigger negative impact on your life, if by quitting that job you won't be able to pay your rent and you'll become, you'll get evicted from your home immediately. You can't put food on the table. That's a very real situation for so many people. But there may be alternatives around that. There may be other ways to quit that life that makes you miserable, but transition into a life that might be more fulfilling, that might give you more opportunity on the other side of that. Maybe there's an opportunity to overlap from one to the other, to start something before you finish something else. But there are so many nuances to that type of situation. There are so many different factors at play that only on an individual basis can they be assessed and analysed to work out what the right thing to do is. What I'm kind of wanting to look at here more specifically is off the back of this question about me being at the Liam Gallagher concert last night, somebody who's at the top of their game who's got 150,000 people screaming and leaping around dancing, worshipping him in a field at Nebworth. When's the right time for Liam to quit? And I don't know the answer to that, but I'm using it as an example. When somebody's at the top of their game, when somebody seemingly has the world at their feet, has everything on a plate in front of them, 
could there still be a right time to quit that, to walk away from that? And the answer in many, many cases is yes. Because even if you, on the face of it, have a job, a career, a situation in life which looks amazing to the outside world, a little bit like the unknown emotional states we were talking about earlier on, it's not always as obvious as it looks on the surface. My situation at McLaren looked like a crazy decision if you just took it at surface level. I had an incredible job at an incredible team in an incredible industry that so many people would do anything to get into, and I literally just walked away from it. That looks like madness, but I knew it was the right thing. And so my point here is that even if you have been successful, even if you are doing things that work, if you're happy in life, if you've got everything going for you, if you built a business, I mean, how many entrepreneurs build successful businesses and then sell them, move on? Of course, that can often come with financial stability. Maybe it was always part of the plan, but quitting something that you've built from scratch. An entrepreneur's company is often like their baby and letting go of it can be quite a difficult thing to do. It can be a difficult decision to make, even if there's huge financial recompense coming on the other side of that. But the decision to quit, if it's the right one for you, because as an entrepreneur, you've got new ideas, you've got something else bubbling away in the back of your mind that could be even bigger and better, that now is igniting a bit more passion than the business you may have had for 10 years and is no longer the startup that excited you in the beginning, that now has bigger and more shareholders involved that all have a say. And maybe it's not the same process that got you so excited all those years ago. Maybe the same passion that ignited that project has moved on to something else. And in that situation, maybe the right thing for you to do is to quit. The same thing can apply to relationships. You could be in a relationship that on the face of it looks amazing. Two beautiful people who look great together, who have fun together, who have grown to be best of friends. But perhaps the best of friends bit has taken away from the romantic interaction that you had when you first got together. Perhaps the passion for each other has waned and transformed into a beautiful friendship, a friendship that has so much value. But if you're not excited by each other in the way you once were romantically, if you don't ignite the same kind of passions that you once did for each other in the same way today, because it's evolved into more of a friendship, Friendship can be amazing, but it might not be what you need from a romantic partner. It might be one element, but not the whole thing. Maybe your lives have changed and taken different paths. Maybe your passions for other interests have changed. And maybe your careers have changed to a point where you have a passion for something that may be stronger than the passion you have from the person who is now your friend, who has so much to offer you and vice versa, but the passion might now have moved from that person to a career or to a hobby or to an interest. And if those things no longer marry up with each other, if they don't match each other, if they can't be intertwined in the same way, and if you're both looking to do different things, and if you still desire that same passion from another human being, yet you're not getting it, maybe the best thing to do is to quit that relationship. I mean, it may be that you don't have to quit the friendship. I mean, there's a whole other dynamic around that that I'm not going to get into right now. But the idea of being a romantic partner to somebody, if that idea conjures up certain needs, certain desires, and if those desires are not being met, may be the right thing for you both to do in that scenario is to quit, is to walk away, is to embark on something new, or at least open up the possibility of something better for both of you. And that's the point. Quitting in the right circumstances enables further opportunity that may not have been there had you not quit. And what you have to do when making a decision like this, even if on the face of it, things look great, this relationship may look great to so many other people, but if it doesn't look perfect to you, could there be something better out there for you that the current situation is preventing you chasing after, preventing you exploring? And that could be the same in your job, in your career. It could be the same in almost any scenario. Is the current status quo potentially holding you back from achieving something better, from exploring something that may end up being better? And if that desire is greater than the desire for what you already have, 
then maybe quitting is the right thing to do. And the point that I'm trying to make here is that quitting is okay. Because only you know if it's the right thing to do for you. But if it feels like it, go for it. Weigh up the options. Ask yourself the questions. Look at the pros and cons. Of course, do all of those things. Do your due diligence. That's the most sensible thing. It's the right thing to do. But if the answer that comes out of all of that process is that the best thing for you is to quit, is to walk away, is to explore something different, then go for it. Because no matter what anybody else looking on might think, they might think it's a crazy decision from their perspective, but from your perspective, which is the only one that ultimately matters in a situation like this, is the right one. So don't worry about what other people think about your decision as long as you have done your due diligence, as long as you have got some element of confidence in that decision-making process. Me quitting my job at McLaren seemed like a crazy decision to so many people. Even people around me questioned what I was doing. Am I doing the right thing? Isn't it? Look, isn't that crazy? You've wanted this job your whole life and you've got it. It's there for you. No one's telling you you've got to leave, yet you're making that decision unprovoked, unpushed. You're walking away from something that you have spent so long chasing down. And whilst I was trying to come to terms with that decision to make the right call, and it was a really hard one, it was an incredibly difficult decision, one of the toughest I've ever had to make, there was still, of course, an element of doubt that I'd done the right thing. But once I'd made the decision, I knew it was the right thing. I had made the right decision for the right reasons for me. Quitting was the right thing for me to do in that moment. It's scary because... Whilst we know what the status quo is, we know what we've got right now. We know what life is like under the current situation. The unknown is what's on the other side of quitting, and that can be terrifying, but it can also be really exciting. And that's what we need to weigh up. Is what's on the other side of quitting exciting enough? Does it hold enough potential for us to outweigh the comfortable status quo situation that we might be in? Even if we don't hate our jobs, even if what we've got seemingly looks great, is the potential on the other side of quitting even greater? Because if it is, well, it may just be worth going for. Don't be afraid to quit if it's the right thing for you. That is, I hope, the message that comes out of this one. And I've saved a little bit of time at the end of today's podcast because what I really want to do is to pick out a message that I got sent from somebody just earlier on today. And it's a really nice message, but it also poses a question that I thought we could answer at the very end of this podcast. This is what it says. Hi Mark, I just finished episode 26 of Pit Lane Life Lessons and the part about being thrust into a leadership position just because you're a high performer despite not having any leadership training really resonated with me because that's exactly what I've experienced over the past two years or so and I have a question that I think could be interesting for your podcast. I'll start off with a question because the background part of the message has got quite long Um, and it really has got quite long. It ran on for a good 10 or 15 minutes worth of reading. Imagine how long that takes to write. So first of all, Felix, the person who wrote me this message, thank you so much for taking the time. I read the whole thing and I've responded to Felix privately as well. But this is the question that he poses here. How do you, as a leader and or a team member, deal with someone who's not performing to the desired level? I guess you would deal with it differently depending on if the underlying reason is poor motivation, a complicated home life, incompetence or something else. But it is nonetheless an interesting topic that I'd love to hear your take on. So Felix, thank you so much for taking the time to write that comment and that question. And he does, Felix, go on in his his message uh, that came on Twitter to explain the entire background of a specific situation that he's going through within his company environment. And I've responded to that privately. Um, But this question that he's posed there, how do you deal with somebody who's underperforming, I thought was a perfect one to slot into the very end of this week's podcast. Partly because we've covered some of it already, of course, talking about the Daniel Ricciardo's situation at McLaren, but I thought we could explore that slightly further in terms of this office-type environment, but it also applies to anybody in a family environment or friendship group, of course, because if somebody's underperforming, there will always be a reason why. And one of the things that I responded to Felix by saying is, and, and by the way, Felix has become an incredible leader by the sounds of it over the past two years and is dealing with these things in an incredibly good way. But one of the things that 
you have to get to the bottom of is why this person is underperforming. And this, as I said, could be somebody in your friendship group, somebody in your close inner circle. It could be somebody in your business or company. But somebody, if they're underperforming, there's a reason behind it. So is it something to do with the immediate environment around them in the office? Is there something that you can change around them, the tooling, the equipment they they use, the people they work with, the resources they have, as I said earlier on? Or is it something outside of that? Is there something going on in their home life? Is there something going on in their personal life that could be affecting their performance at work? And either way, what you need to do as a leader or as a leadership team is try and understand what that is. And the very first thing that has to happen in many of those situations is what can quite often be a really difficult conversation. That can be somebody sitting down and telling the person that, quite frankly, they're underperforming. We are noticing a difference in your performance. You are not living up to the expectations of me or the team around you, and probably your own expectations too. Is there something that I can help with to enable that to happen? Is there a reason that we may not be aware of as to why that's happening? Do you feel like you could benefit from some extra support, from some extra training? Is there something that we could offer you that you think might help you to do your job or to get you into a better place that might then enable you to do your job in this better way? Is there something that I'm doing or that we as a team are doing that you feel is hindering you? Now, these conversations, whether it's with a colleague, an employee at work, whether it's with a friend or a member of your own family, can be the toughest conversations out there. They're the toughest ones to often start because, of course, you're broaching a really difficult subject. But until somebody steps up and broaches that subject, starts that conversation, then the path back towards this better performance that you're missing somewhere can't begin. And until we're on that path back towards better performance, we can't start to find the answers to helping us getting there. Until we start that conversation, none of that can actually happen in the first place. So the first conversation is the thing that a great leader has to be big enough and brave enough to sometimes have, even though it could in the short term be upsetting for the person on the other end of it. Because maybe there's a chance they don't think they're underperforming. Maybe you telling that person that they are underperforming, they're not meeting your expectations, might come as some kind of surprise to them. Maybe they have a different interpretation of their performance to the ones that you have. Ultimately, I think a lot of what we've discussed in today's podcast kind of fits into the answer that I hope will benefit Felix in his personal and and professional situation looking for signs that somebody might be struggling and asking them if there's some way we can support them. Communicating to that person in the right way. Is it a lack of confidence they're struggling with? Are they feeling like they're out of their depth because of one or more factors that might be contributing to that? And if it is, is there something you can say or do? Can you change your behaviours? Can you get the rest of the team to buy into adapting their behaviours to support this person? another member of your team. One of the things that Formula One teams are very, very good at is bonding a team together so that when one person might be having a hard time, they have the arms of the rest of the team around them supporting them, stepping up to fill in the gaps when somebody might be having a tough time and struggling, to step up and support where they can, to offer help to give them a little bit of breathing space if that's what they need, to cover some of their responsibilities. Whatever it might be, if you're part of a team, that team can and should be part of your support network. And as a team leader, one of the things you can offer your team and the people within it is that ability to tap into that support network they may not necessarily appreciate is around them. As a leader, of course, you can be part of that. So all of these things, perhaps many of the things we've talked about today, I hope will benefit Felix, but also so many more of you out there. We are all struggling in different ways of our lives, and it's one of the most important things to appreciate. We can't see it on a daily basis because it's not there on display. We don't shout about the moments we find hard in life. We shout about the ones we find easier. And yet, perhaps at times, we'd all benefit from that being the other way round. So maybe think about something where you can show a bit of vulnerability 
in a relationship, whether it be personal or professional. Perhaps I'll have a think about that myself next week and share something with you that I struggle with that you may not be aware of in the hope that it might help one or two of you out there. Because that's the very point of this podcast. I want to help people. If you've taken something from today's episode that you think could help you or somebody else, share it around. Let me know. Drop me a message on Instagram or Twitter. Leave me a rating or a view in that Apple podcast store. It means the world. Thank you so much for listening this week, sticking with me for the entire hour. I appreciate every single one of you. And whatever it is you're up to over the course of the next seven days, try and remember this. Do the right things. Do the things right.